the book of Revelation, chapter 2. As John writes to the seven churches in Asia, there are at least two ways in which we can see this material being organized. The first is geographical. That is, if you left the island of Patmos, where John was, the first city you would come to, the nearest city, about 45 miles away, would be Ephesus. And then you work your way up the coast to Smyrna, go in inland a bit to Pergamum, then to Thyatira, and then take the road south, and you would hit uh, the last three cities that are mentioned here among the seven churches. Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. The other way to look at this material is to see it in terms of themes. The letters are arranged in two groups of three, uh, with the one in the middle being Thyatira. It's the longest section, and the Lord willing it is what we will look at next week. In the first group of three, we hear the call, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church, to the churches, and then there is the promise. In the second three, we hear the promise and then we hear the call to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, in both groups of three, the middle church, uh, Smyrna and Philadelphia, are churches which are written about without rebuke. There is nothing wrong with them. Uh, there is reference made to the opposition of those who claim to be Jews. And there is the promise of a crown. That's some background. Last week we looked at the letter to the church in Smyrna, which had experienced persecution and which was about to experience even more. And persecution was described as involving being put in prison by the devil, but only for a short time, not because they were then going to be released and freed, but because they were then going to be taken out and put to death. And in the conclusion last Sunday, I tried to make the case in terms of application for us uh, regarding being slandered and regarding the gospel being slandered, that there are at least three things that we should keep in mind. First of all, we should not be surprised by it. Secondly, we should not strike back or respond in anger. And thirdly, we should not play the victim card. The comment was made to me afterwards that perhaps I said a bit too much. I emphasized a bit too much the idea of playing uh, the victim card. And perhaps I did. But I would say that if I had preached this sermon 20 years ago, and actually I did about 23 years ago, preach on that particular passage, I, I would not have said anything, and I didn't say anything then, uh, in terms of application of playing the victim card. But now in our culture, it has become so commonplace for, claim, for people to claim to be victims. And, and we hear people in the church doing it as well. And I believe that it is dishonoring to Christ to do so. See, in this culture, people seem unwilling to suffer the consequences of their words, their actions, or their beliefs. And it seems that many Christians because we are part of this culture, are unwilling as well. I'm not saying that we're supposed to have a martyr complex, but I think we should understand that there is a price to be paid for being a Christian. And we should ask ourselves, am I willing to pay that price, or should I complain that I'm being discriminated against, that people are slandering me, and it's really unfair and unjust? This past week, I read of a young man in the U.S. Army uh, who, right before he was going to be sent to Iraq, uh, deserted and went to Canada. There he has applied for a political asylum, which this past week it was in the news because it was denied. And his reason for going to Canada was that he did not want to fight in either Afghanistan or Iraq because he believed them to be unjust wars. And let's set aside the moment uh, for a moment whether or not you agree with his political views. My question is, 
if you believe that you're right, why aren't you willing to stand up for your beliefs and suffer the consequences? I mean, we have people making all these claims and saying, I believe in this and this is wrong and this is what's right. But it seems that very few are willing to pay the price to suffer the consequences for their point of view. If he honestly believes that the war in Iraq is unjust, I think the most amazing thing he could do was, would be to allow himself to be incarcerated as someone who refused to obey a direct order. Instead, he has run off to Canada, and now he's claiming to be a victim of political oppression from this country. He's playing the victim card. And again, I think that we hear this in the church as well. Uh, this is not well known. I remember hearing Os Guinness talk about it, that back in the early 90s, at the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C., some of the major leaders uh, in the movement met afterwards, and they're like, you know, we're sort of losing ground here. The moral majority is sort of out of disfavor, and what are we going to do? And the conclusion they came to at the end of their meeting is, we need to portray ourselves as victims. And how dishonoring that is, I think, to the memory of our brothers and sisters in Smyrna who gave their lives, but how dishonoring it is to Christ. We should understand that there may be a price for to pay to be paid for being a Christian. We should not be surprised if there is. We should not respond in anger if there is. And we should not say, well, I'm being discriminated against. It's so unfair. These people have lied about me. Satan means the accuser. Devil means the slanderer. Why are we surprised if this would happen to us? So, all that to say, if I spent too much time on the victim card, there's... I think I had good justification. Okay. Today we come to the letter to the church at Pergamum. And let's read this section first and then we'll go through it. Beginning in verse 12 of Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you, have, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Pergamum had several claims to fame. First of all, I think the most significant thing about it, it was a capital city. Uh, it was the capital of the Attalid kingdom, which arose after the death of Alexander the Great. And for about a hundred years, it was the capital. And then the last leader, uh, sort of in his last will and testament, ceded his city, Pergamum, over to the Roman Empire. And it remained the capital of Asia until 130 AD. So over a period of 300 years, it was a capital city there in Asia. It was the place of the throne. Uh, just for your information, Caesar Augustus made Ephesus a financial and administrative center, but Pergamum re retained its place. 
Its second claim to fame was its library. Of course, I'm interested in that. Uh, it had a world-famous library, second only to the one in Alexandria. It contained over 200,000 books, which is an immense number in any case, but imagine all of these books were handwritten, copied by hand. By the way, the word in Greek for parchment uh, comes from the root word pergamum, pergamena. It was a city of books. It was also a center of worship with three major religious connections. First of all, it was a center of the worship of the god Asclepius, uh, the god of healing. Uh, people who needed healing came from all over the world. It, so it was, if you wish, sort of the lords of its day. People would come there. And the temple of Asclepius had medical records. It had a medical school. And it had priests there who would minister to the needs of those who were suffering. Asclepius, you're probably familiar with if you look at certain medical emblems even today that have the snakes. That's the sign of Asclepius. Because when you went into the temple, they had snakes roaming around. Uh, they were tame. And people would spend the night there and hope that in some way the snake would touch them because the, the touch of the snake was believed to be the touch of Asclepius himself. Obviously, for those who have read the book of Genesis, the snake has entirely different connotations. But in that city, it was a sign of healing. It was also a place where the worship of the Greek gods was very prominent. It considered itself sort of the last outpost of Greek civilization. It had a, a a hill in the city that was shaped like a cone that was covered with temples and shrines. And at the very top was a, a temple to uh, Zeus with an enormous altar on it. But above all that, it was a center of Caesar worship. The, C the city built the first temple to the worship of Augustus and the goddess Roma. This is in 29 BC, so fairly early on. They are the first to embrace the idea that Caesar is a god and needs to be worshipped. Pergamon claimed to be, uh, the word in Greek is neokoros, and it means literally the one who sweeps the temple. In the hierarchy of temple servants, if you wish, those who work in the temple, the temple sweeper was the lowest person. But Pergamon gladly embraced this title to say, listen, we are those who sweep the floor in the temple of Caesar. We are glad to do anything we can to advance the worship of Caesar. That is the city where the church is in Pergamum. The one speaking, the resurrected Christ, describes himself as him who has the sharp double-edged sword. And as we've seen at, at the beginning of each of the seven letters, Christ is described in different ways. And as we've said, we're left with one of two choices. Either it's to break up the monotony because you don't want to say the same thing in every letter. Or, in fact, the way that Christ is described in each letter has specific importance for that particular congregation. Here he is the one with the sharp double-edged sword. We saw this in chapter 1 when John has his vision of the Son of Man in the midst of the golden lampstands. The sword here speaks of judgment. It speaks of authority. The proconsul in the Roman Empire stayed in Pergamum. He would make the circuit, but he lived in Pergamum. That's where his residence was. And the symbol of his authority was the sword. As Paul tells us in Romans 13, that those who are in authority have the sword. Well, at the very beginning, Christ wants to let the church in Pergamum know, I have the sharp double-edged sword. 
I have the authority. I am the one who will pronounce judgment. And then Christ speaks to the church, first of all, positively and then negatively. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. As the one who is in the midst of the golden lampstands, as the one who holds the seven churches in his right hand, Jesus knows what is going on with his churches. And in this church, he knows where they live. It is where Satan has his throne. Pergamum. It's interesting, I'm not big on Greek, but there is something interesting here in this passage, that generally in the New Testament, whenever it talks about Christians living in the world, it uses a verb that that speaks more of pilgrimage, uh, of traveling. Um, In various translations, it's usually translated as strangers. In Hebrews 11, they admitted that they were aliens and strangers in the world. Uh, Peter writes to God's elect strangers in the world. But that's not the word that John uses here. When he says, I know where you live, it is not where you live temporarily or as a pilgrim or someone who's passing through. He says, I know where you live permanently, where you have your residence, where you have settled. And I believe that Christ is saying to the church in Pergamum, you are permanent residents there in that city and you are to continue to be residents in that city. It is not the Christian way. It is not our duty to run from dangerous and difficult situations. Our aim is not to escape, but to overcome, to be people of faith. And at the very beginning, Christ says to them, I know where you live. And you need to continue to live there, in the place where Satan has his throne. As I mentioned earlier, The word throne is really prominent in the book of Revelation. It appears 46 times. Uh, The closest book to it in the New Testament, the book of Matthew, has it only five times. So the idea of the throne is prominent in John's writing here. Because the book of Revelation, above everything else, is a book about God's rule. It reveals Jesus as the Lord of history. And John wants his readers to know, and Christ speaking through John, that the public official worship of Jesus as Lord is central to human history. What we do on every Sunday, this is what human history is about. Jesus Christ is Lord. But there is someone who seeks to replace him. There is someone who has an alternative throne, who wants to be presented as the Lord of all reality. I find it really interesting that in the previous letter to Smyrna, There we find the the synagogue of Satan, and the persecution there was from the Jews. Here we have the throne of Satan, and the persecution is from the Gentiles. Among the Jewish diaspora, the synagogue was the central identifying point of the community. This is who we are as a people. And Christ says it belongs to Satan. Well, in Pergamum, the central identifying feature of their person their personness, if you wish, as a people, was political. We belong to Rome. And Christ says, yeah, that's the throne of Satan. In Smyrna, you have the synagogue of Satan. In Pergamum, you have the throne of Satan. And yet, Christ says, you have remained true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. Here, the persecution came from pagans. 
they were to do what people in Smyrna were encouraged to do, to go to the image of Caesar and to take a pinch of incense and throw it on the fire and say, Caesar is Lord. And they refused to do so because Jesus was their Lord. And they would not acknowledge someone else as being in charge. Apparently, there is a specific incident in mind about which we are, it's only mentioned in passing, and that is it involves a man named Antipas. We know nothing about him. We simply know that he is referred to as my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. There are two things I think worth considering about this. First of all, Antipas, as someone who is a faithful witness, is following in the footsteps of Jesus. Because at the very, very beginning, in the prologue of this book, Jesus is described as the faithful witness. And as we saw then, uh, someone who is a witness is not someone who is powerless. A witness is someone who speaks the word of God, who speaks judgment. And there is a price to be paid. And apparently Antipas was put to death. The second thing worth considering, and, and I don't know exactly how to put this, but which would you prefer? That the world know you and know much about you? Or that Christ say about you, you are my faithful witness? And a hymn that we sang earlier, content to let the world go by to know nor gain nor loss. I think that's easier sung than done. We know nothing about Antipas, but what wonderful words that Christ would say of him. He is my faithful witness. That's the positive, but there is a negative. And nevertheless, I have a few things against you. It doesn't mean a few unimportant things. It actually means that there are certain people in the congregation, a few of them, who are guilty of these things and the situation needs to be corrected. You see, what happened to the church in Pergamum has happened, I think, to churches throughout church history. And that is, as they fight a frontal assault on the one hand, something much more subtle comes in through the back door and slips in and creeps in and does incredible damage while people are busy fighting at the front door. Jesus says to them, you have people who hold to the teaching of Balaam. The story of Balaam is found in Numbers chapters 22 through 24. Balaam was a prophet. He was hired by uh, Balak, who was uh, the king of Moab. Israel is coming in. They're about ready to get into the promised land. And, and the king of Moab believes he cannot defeat them in battle. Therefore, he needs someone who can curse them. And he pays Balaam to curse them. Well, if you read the story, uh, Balaam is confronted at night by God. God tells him, don't do that. He allows him to go on, but he says, don't, you only do what I tell you to do. And there's a wonderful story. Most of us learned it, I think, in Sunday school of how Balaam was on his donkey and there was the angel of the Lord in the road with a sword. Balaam couldn't see the angel. The donkey could. And so the donkey refused to go. And three different times, Balaam is beating the donkey, trying to get the donkey to go. And at one point, the donkey turns around and says to him, why are you beating me? Which I think is fairly amazing. But for me, even more amazing, Balaam talks back to him, you know, and says, I'm beating you because I want you to go and you won't go. 
And then God opened his eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord with the sword. It is interesting that that story is brought up in this particular context. He who has the sharp double-edged sword. He doesn't curse Israel. In fact, he blesses them three times. But he finds another way to do incredible damage to Israel. He entices them to sin, to eat meat that is offered to idols, and to sexual immorality. Balaam was able to get Israel, at least a significant portion, to turn away from God. And God judged them, and 24,000 people died as a result of God's judgment. And one could argue that this is greater damage than the king of Moab could have ever inflicted. What they did was they enticed, they set up a trap. And the trap was they sent women in, encouraged them to worship false gods, to eat meat that had been offered to idols, and then to participate in sexual immorality. We saw this in 1 Corinthians, how that eating food that is sacrificed to idols might be seen as a matter of a weak conscience, might seem to be a matter of seeming to worship idols, but as Paul finally puts it, it is a matter of participating in the worship of idols, and it is not to be done. Sexual immorality, I think in the ancient world people could not understand what the Christians were all worked up about. The sexual morals of pagans were loose, and on the other hand, the morals of Christians seem severe, puritanical, Victorian, pejoratives that have emerged in the past couple hundred years. And so a compromise is encouraged. Yeah, you can go to church, that's fine, but you know, hang out with us at the temple afterwards. Paul told the Corinthians two things. Flee from idolatry, flee from sexual immorality. And there are people in the church at Pergamum who have not done that. And while the congregation is busy fighting against the throne of Satan in their city, something has come in the back door and done damage. You have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. We saw about the church in Ephesus that they hated the teachings and the practices of the Nicolaitans. This was an orthodox church, one that did not tolerate wicked men, one that did not tolerate false apostles. They tested them, they found them to be false, and they threw them out. The problem with the church in Pergamum is actually the opposite. The problem was taking a stand for right doctrine. The first church council, which was held in Jerusalem, sent a letter out to Gentile congregations, and this is in part what they wrote. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. But the church in Pergamum had not avoided these things. There were those in the congregation who were participating in this. And so in verse 16, we have the warning from Christ who stands in the midst of the lampstands. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Repent. Who should repent? Uh, Is it the church? Is it the false teachers? Is it the people who are doing these things? Uh, Who should repent? You know, if he meant 
the people were doing the wrong things and the false teachers. We get that. You know, the teachings of the Nicolaitans, we get that. But, but why should the church repent? They've remained true to his name. They have not renounced their faith in him. In the face of Satan's throne, they have remained true. And only a few people have sort of gone astray and, and, and done these things. Yes, but they tolerated it. They tolerated false teaching in the midst of the congregation. And Paul wrote the Corinthians about this in 1 Corinthians 5. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of that old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast. You need to get rid of these people. You need to repent. And the repentance is to be seen, I think, in first of all, refusing to tolerate the teaching, and second of all, disciplining those who had embraced false teaching. They had gotten into idolatry, they had gotten into adultery. And they are to repent and to put these people out. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Christ's coming here is not referring to the second coming. We've seen this already and we will see it again. Christ will one day return. There is a second coming. But there are times in which he comes to his congregations in judgment against certain people. It happened to the Corinthians. They were abusing the Lord's Supper and Paul tells them, you know what? Because of this, some are sick, some have died. Christ has come to his church in judgment. And Christ says, repent or I will come. Secondly, I think the sword that is mentioned here, usually when I think of a sharp double-edged sword, immediately I go to Hebrews 4.12, uh, that the word of God is uh, sharp, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I don't think that's what's at play here. I think what we find instead is the sword is a symbol of authority and judgment. Just in the same way as the angel of the Lord stood on the road in front of Balaam with the sword, Christ will come to his church if they do not repent and will bring judgment. They need to repent. And now we come to verse 17 in which we hear the promise. First of all, we must remember what is said, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That is, the application now comes to us. We are to listen. It is written to a church back then, but now we are to listen to the application. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. For those of you who, this is the first time with us in this study, uh, where Paul speaks of faith and belief, John speaks of overcoming. It is not victory versus defeat. It is victory versus treason. Will you stand with Christ, who is victorious, or will you stand against him? As Paul would say, will you believe in him or will you not believe in him? And so to the one who overcomes, we shouldn't think it's like, yes, you know, we're number one. You know, we're the winners. Rather, it is to those who have put their faith in the one who is victorious, to those who are the overcomers, I will give the hidden manna. Manna is very much an Old Testament issue. Uh, 
as Israel traveled through the wilderness, God provided for them miraculously, day after day, bread from heaven, the bread of life. Moses told Israel toward the end of their journey, God humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus announced in John chapter 6 that manna pointed ahead to him, that that bread from heaven, that bread of life, actually pointed to him who was the bread of life. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate man in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And so, as we've seen previously, the promise that is given is the promise of salvation, the bread of life, that is Jesus Christ himself. The question is, why is it hidden? Hidden manna, you know, what's up with, with that? It is hidden from those who do not believe. In the same way that the angel of the Lord could not be seen by Balaam. He was there. The donkey could see him, but Balaam could not. Christ as the bread of life is not seen by those who have not put their faith in Christ. And so, in many ways, it is hidden manna. It is the hidden bread of life. He is there for all to see, but they do not see him. Jesus said in that same chapter, in John chapter 6, You have seen me and still do not believe. And in that sense, he was hidden to them. So first, there is the promise of eternal life, the bread of life, this hidden manna. Secondly, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. This is perhaps not as clear as we might like. Why a white stone? What is indicated by this? I've told you as we've been going through Revelation that I think to understand Revelation, we need to understand Scripture. And so when we come to something like this on the white stone, it is very tempting to look for some cultural explanation. Uh, for example, if you had lived in Pergamum at that time and someone talked about a white stone, you might have thought, oh, if you're in a, jur a jury and you're giving a not guilty vote, you would put a white stone. If you believe the person was guilty, you would put a black stone. And that's where we get our expression about being blackballed, that instead of being found not guilty, you're saying, I believe that this person is guilty. If you went to the temple of Asclepius, if you joined the religion of Asclepius, you were given a white stone. If you wanted a magical amulet to protect you from Pergamum, it would be a white stone. So it's really, and I think there is something to that, I think that, the people of Pergamum, they understood the whole idea of the white stone. But again, let's look in Scripture. In the Old Testament, we are told that the high priest had a special outfit that he wore. On it, it had 12 precious stones, and on each of them were etched the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then on each shoulder, he had a stone of onyx, and on each one were six names of the tribes of Israel. So he carried with him the twelve tribes of Israel. 
I think being etched on stone, being written on stone, speaks of permanence. Because when you say the bread of life, when you say manna, you're thinking, well, how long can that last? I mean, after a while, I'm going to be hungry again. But when your name is written on a stone, it speaks of something that will last for a long, long time. But what is this business of a new name? A name that is known only to him who receives it. It speaks of new life, a new character. Paul told the Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. And new creatures are to be given new names. It's not, I don't think it is a literal name, that somehow we need to try to figure out what what exactly is my new name. But rather it speaks to the fact that we are now new people in Christ. And it is not a secret name. I don't think that's what is intended. It is an exclusive name. I belong to Christ and I am his. And Jesus says to the people of Pergamum, you live where Satan lives. You live where Satan's throne is. Don't leave. I'm not asking you to leave. I am asking you to repent of the sin that's come into the church. You've not renounced your faith. You have remained true. Continue to do so. You have the gift of eternal life. The hidden manna, the white stone with the new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And what does the Spirit say to us about this today? I would suggest at least two things for you to consider and to meditate on in the coming week. First of all, the call of the Christian is not to leave. Even when the place is the place of Satan's throne. One might think, yeah, if that's where Satan is, that's a place I shouldn't be. That's a place I don't want to be. And yet to the church in Pergamum, they are there. They are to stay there. They are to remain faithful. I think for most of us, perhaps that's not a real problem. We don't have any intentions of going out and living in the wilderness or joining a commune someplace. I mean, we live in this megalopolis, Los Angeles. Um, and I don't think that that really is our problem. I think the problem is the second thing that I want you to think about, and that is while we are facing danger on the one hand and dealing with the danger on, the, on this in, in front of us, we fail to recognize that there may be something behind us. Very subtle. Very insidious. That can do incredible damage. I've told this story a number of times recently, and so if you've heard it, please bear with me. Uh, It's a story that Nikita Khrushchev used to tell uh, about one of the collective factories back during the time of the Soviet Union. And um, there was a man in this factory that everybody knew was stealing. He was a thief and everybody knew he was stealing. No one could catch him. And so they assigned a special guard to stand at the gate to catch this guy stealing. And so first day, a guy gets off work and he comes out with a wheelbarrow and he's got a big burlap sack full of sawdust. And the guard says, what have you got there? And he says, it's sawdust. It's a sack of sawdust. Take it, use it as fuel when I go home. Like, well, you know, he's a thief. Everyone knows he's a thief. So 
the guard empties out the sawdust and there's nothing in there. It's just sawdust. So he lets him go. Didn't catch him that time. Second day, same thing happens. Man comes out. What do you got there? I just got sawdust. And he, oh, he empties the sack. Yeah, sure enough, there's nothing there. And this goes on for some time. And finally, the guard becomes incredibly frustrated. And, and finally, he, he talks to this man. He says, listen, okay, I know you're stealing. Okay, and I'm not going to report you. But, you know, I'm about to go crazy here because I don't know how you're doing this. Okay, you're, you're robbing us blind and, and you're stealing from us and I, and I can't catch you. Are you stealing from us, first of all? And the man said, yes, I am. Okay. What are you stealing from us? He said, wheelbarrows. Completely under the radar. It never occurred to the man that it was the wheelbarrow that was being taken. And I think in the church today, we're on our guard. We're ready to fight against heresy. We're, we're ready to stand against anything that Satan may bring against us. And we forget that something may be coming in the back door. The Ephesian church was the same way. They fought against the Nicolaitans, but they had forgotten their first love. They had forgotten to take care of each other. This church is just busy trying to survive in the place where Satan lives. Something's come in the back door. I think it's not only true of congregations, I think it's true of individuals. And I think we need to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We're here until Christ calls us home. We're not called to go out and live in the middle of nowhere. We are where God has put us. That's where we should be. Even if it is the place where Satan lives. And by the way, it's always interesting. I don't know if you, if you have this experience, but you know, if you go and visit relatives in other parts of the country and, and you tell them, you know, where do you live? I live in Los Angeles. Well, where? Uh, near Hollywood. Oh, Hollywood. Oh, you know, it's like, oh, you know, it's Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, maybe it is. But this is where God has put us. This is where we are to live. This is where we are to remain true. And in the process, understand that it is not only the frontal assaults, it's those sneaky things from behind that will get us. Some time back, we had a plumber come and work on the house. We needed some things replaced. And he was telling me he had just done some work up in Glendale. And he told me this thing that I just found amazing, because we have magnolia trees out here, which, which I love. And he's saying that magnolia trees do incredible damage to pipe systems. And he says what happens is that the magnolias send out their roots and they smell water in the pipes. And so they, they create these paper-thin roots that get in between the joints there, and then they get to the water, and then they plump up, and in the process, destroy your pipes. It's really quite amazing. I think the same thing happens in our lives, it happens in the life of the church. These things come in so subtly. And we're so busy being at the front door that we've missed it. We should hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for our brothers and sisters who centuries ago in Pergamon stood firm. Even in the difficult situations they faced. 
but we fear that like them we may have been only looking in one direction and allowed things into our lives and perhaps even into the life of the church that should not be tolerated we thank you that Jesus knows what is going on in the midst of his churches he knows where we live we thank you that he has authority to judge and that he has given us eternal life the hidden manna a new name on a white stone that no one can take away I pray that in the days to come we would think on what has been said meditate on it May we not be hearers only, but doers as well. And now we ask that your grace and your spirit would go with us as we leave this place. May we be lights in a world of darkness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand please as we sing the doxology together? May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.